Yeah, welcome, welcome to Thursday's Richie Allen Show. How are you? Are you well? It's the 14th of September 2023. I'm Richie Allen. Get in touch with me during the programme via the message facility on the Richie Allen Show app or you can leave a message via richieallen.co.uk. Let's do it then. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Andrew Barr is a social historian and a campaigner for civil liberties. He contributes to the Daily Skeptic. He's a very good writer. But he founded a group called Jews for Justice, and he'll tell us why in the second hour of the program. Well, I can let you in on a little bit of it. A Jews for Justice is very concerned about the weaponization of anti-Semitism, about people using accusations of anti-Semitism to shut down debate, not about affairs of Israel or affairs of Jewish people, but about conversations about geopolitics. We know this. We know that people accuse people of being anti-Semitic just to silence them. So we'll talk to Andrew about this an hour or two. Before that, Heather will be on the programme. Now, Heather formerly worked in the NHS, got in touch with me, sent me an email, really well put together email. She's very concerned about the attenuated shot, the attenuated flu shot, which will be given nasally to uh, school kids in this country in the coming weeks. And she'll tell us why, and we'll talk about other things too when she joins the programme later this hour. So it's a busy one. It'll be very interesting, he says modestly. No, it will be interesting. And do share your thoughts, as I said, via the app or via richieallen.co.uk. Yeah. Beautiful day today in the northwest. B-E-A-U-T-F-O. It's gorgeous today. Absolutely lovely. The sun shone lovely and warm and all is good, all is well. Now, uh, it doesn't matter where we start. I don't rank the stories in the rundown in order of importance. I don't, right? So I, I can be a bit silly with that sometimes. Not purposely uh, silly, but it just happens that way. But I want to start with this Roisin Murphy. You know who Roisin Murphy is? Uh, of course you do. Uh, the musician, the singer. Now, the BBC has denied this morning, last night this morning, that Roisin Murphy's comments about puberty blockers... Uh, is behind her is the reason her music has been removed from a scheduled programme on BBC Six Music Radio. You know about this, right? The BBC has pulled her music from a programme due to go out on Six Music. Now, she caused a bit of controversy last month. I don't know why. Uh, she posted on Facebook that, quote, puberty blockers are effing absolutely desolate, end quote, adding... Quote, Big Pharma laughing all the way to the bank, end quote. Now, you'll know that puberty blockers are sometimes used by trans children. Very controversial, this. Planned Parenthood say these are medical treatments to help your body better reflect your gender identity. We know what Planned Parenthood is, don't we? We know all about it. So, uh, in my opinion, not that I have any medical training, puberty blockers are dangerous. And we've had a lot of doctors on this programme who said, listen, it's dangerous because it is not understood the impact on people later in life if they have halted their puberty. Anyway, so sadly, she came out and apologised for this later on. 
Now, Kathleen Stock, remember her, the philosopher and writer, driven out of academia here, Sussex University, because of this nonsense. Now, she was on Times Radio earlier on. She's an eloquent woman, isn't she, Kathleen Stock? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this this news story, uh, which is a very, I mean, it's very much of its age, and you, you won't be surprised by any of it. Um, uh, the BBC said it hasn't cancelled Rasheen, I think is how you pronounce it, Rasheen Murphy. She said something which didn't seem particularly... Uh, controversial or Larry or she's entitled to her opinion, you would think vulnerable and little mixed up kids needed to be protected from puberty blockers. She's then no longer put on the BBC. They deny it's because of this. She then apologises and talks about the actions and the divisions of, of my opinions have caused is heartbreaking. Um, does this all feel very familiar to you, Kathleen? Stop. <laughs> yeah, there's a bear shite in the woods. Well, yeah, because I've seen it unfolds, versions of this unfolds hundreds of times, including the apology bit, which... It's just such a shame that she felt she had to apologise for... Per- well said, Kathleen Stock. It really galls me when they apologise. When the Twitter mob jumps on top of people. And she's going to make a very good point here in a moment, so listen carefully, about how small and insignificant these mobs are. We, we should keep this in mind, right? It's a Twitter mob. When, when, when they do, sadly, most of the time, people roll back and apologise and they should never do that. Perfectly sensible, medically approved opinions... Uh, and it was on a private Facebook wall, I believe, um, even more ridiculous. But uh, yeah, the BBC, if that's true that they've, I mean, she's got a number one album at the moment, so why wouldn't, and she's absolutely classic uh, BBC, BBC Six music material. She is, but she's a hateful cow. Uh, given her background and the type, type of music she makes. So if it's true that they've um, eliminated her from the schedule, I just think, oh God, I don't have pre- repeatable words. <laughs> for the BBC right now. We also have The Guardian, the, the other great actor in these these uh, endless yeah. dramas. Uh, one of its music reviewers gave Hit Parade a five-star review, but noted her comments would be compromised, mean it would be compromised for many fans. Do you want to hear what the headline was? Have you seen this headline? This is brilliant. This is a review in The Guardian for the album that's apparently brilliant. I hope sales of the album have gone through the roof as a result of this, if there's any good to come of it. Listen to the headline in The Guardian. I've seen it. It was an ugly stain. A masterful album with an mm. ugly stain. A masterful album with an ugly stain. <laughs> I give it five stars, but it kills me to do it because she's a hateful bitch. Having uh, that opinion. I mean, it, we've returned. They're Puritans. They're, they're. I've said this a thousand times on this program. Puritans, puritanical, it's madness. But they are insignificant, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Bourgeois Puritans who are basically um, let their morals get clo- too close to their aesthetics anyway. I mean, we, we, we tolerate enormous amounts of misdeeds in real misdeeds in artists because we don't care about them. And that's exactly the way it should be because we're interested in the art, not the people. Uh, but this now for these people that sit around all day pretending to be like louche and um, avant-garde to be uh, inhabiting the sort of most puritanical prim attitudes um, and, and congratulating themselves for it. It's just sickening. Do you think the BBC needs to show it? I mean, one, one answer to this, the BBC denies it's removed this for that reason. Maybe it should show, well, it support yeah. for, should show it support from free speech and put something on from her now to show that it's it exactly. believes in free speech. I mean, just act like everything's normal. Like, stop pandering <laughs> to this stupid tendency, which is not even that widespread in society. I mean, it's all based on um, anticipation of... Uh, pushback rather than the actual pushback that they get. So just get on with your jobs and stop sort of participating in these ridiculous confected outrages. Well said. Very very eloquent lady. Absolutely bang on. Driven by anticipation. They panic because of the anticipation 
of the backlash rather than the actual backlash, which is insignificant. And I suppose today is a good day to, to, to remind you is that back in 2019, I was in the middle of this, right in the middle of it, when I was being accused of all manner of things, including being anti-Semitic and all of that. And it kicked off for days and some very famous people got involved in it coming after me and accusing me of things that, that obviously I'm not guilty of. But you see, I was armed with what what um, Kathleen Stock knows. And that's the reason I didn't get remotely upset or bothered by it and just put up with it for three days and fought back and laughed at these idiots. Is that really it's only a handful of idiots, really. You know, most people couldn't care less and are not interested in this stuff. And people would do well to remember that when they are called upon to explain something they said or did. Don't panic. This Puritan nonsense she described so brilliantly there, it's only a few people. And a lot of it is not even genuine anyway. It's, it's stuff that is, I, I reckon a lot of it is driven by people working for the tabloids, particularly the mail and maybe the, the, the sun and the mirror. Don't panic if it happens to you. It's no big deal. Incidentally, what happened was uh, an odious woman who writes for The Independent asked me, what did I think of the Holocaust? Trying to trap me into saying something. So just to see what would happen at the time, I said, and I was kind of being honest at the time when I said it, I said, well, I'm sick to bloody death of hearing about it. So it kicked off big time for nearly, well, for over three days, big time really kicked off, right? And um, and I was making a point that there's no room for nuance or context in, um, in social media. Nobody gets to have a proper debate because people get to shout something at you and then completely ignore your answer and swerve your answer and then hit you with, with an ad hominem attack. This is how it works. Of course, I put it in context on the radio show. I've been to the awful, awful places, Dachau and, and Auschwitz. I know people who survived uh, Auschwitz. Uh, the context was every time I put Netflix on or every time I put, um, what's the other one, Amazon Prime, there's a new film about what happened in Nazi Germany. I know, we know, is the point I was making at the time. But um, yeah, we're going to get into some of this with, um, with Andrew, uh, Andrew Barr later on. And I've invited Andrew to have a proper go at, at, at me. Um, for anything I might have said that might have been over the line in, in recent years, because um, it isn't a bully pulpit, this, you know. I've said this before, if, if Jewish people want to take me up on something I've said or not said, I'm, I'm fair game. So we'll, we'll, we'll chat with Andrew. But they're very interested, Jews for Justice, about um, the use of accusing people of being anti-Semitic, not because the accuser actually believes it, but because they want to stain that person somehow to uh, to silence them. Uh, Neil Oliver in particular, Andrew Bridgen, we'll get into those with um, Andrew a little bit later on. Uh, it is Thursday's Richie Allen Show. It's coming up for 11 minutes past the hour. My name is Richie Allen. How are you? Are you well? Anyway, why did Roisin Murphy apologise? Never apologise. Come here, I tell you, are you waiting for elective surgery by any chance? Are you waiting for a scan? I've got bad news for you, or at least the BBC has bad news for you. Uh, this is BBC News 24 this afternoon. It ain't good. The number of people in England waiting to start routine hospital treatment has risen to a record high. NHS figures released today show an estimated 7.68 million people were waiting to start treatment at the end of July. Now that is up from 7.57 million in June. It's the highest number since records began in August 2007. 
It's estimated that at the end of July, 7,289 people in England have been waiting more than 18 months for routine treatment. That number was also up on June's figure. Right. That's not good, is it? Let's get a little bit of meat on the bones of this story from the BBC's own health reporter, a guy called Jim Reid. But just to put this in context, 7.7 million people is one in every seven people in England. So you can see why this is a big political issue across not just England, but the rest of the UK as well, where waiting lists have also been very high and rising. The government says two, an extra £200 million pounds is being put in to help deal with this, to help deal with winter pressures as the LHS starts to get into that period, November, December, January, which is often very difficult for doctors and nurses because more people come forward with colds, with bugs, more slips and falls in the winter and that kind of thing as well, which is why you're seeing this pledge today for an extra £200 million in England. I should say that when you look at the statistics on this, the government say that a lot of this is about industrial action. We've had junior doctors and more senior consultant doctors on strike in August at the time that this data was taken. But actually, when you look at a graph for the overall waiting list in England, it was going up well before the pandemic hit in 2020. Then there was a sharp increase over that pandemic period. And then the number seems to still be ticking up, not at quite the same pace, but still be rising. The government says it has had some success, and the NHS is saying this as well, of reducing the longest waits. So those are waiting more than two years, those, those who are waiting more than 18 months. But overall, this waiting list is still going up, and that is proving to be quite a, a difficult political issue for the government with an election round the corner probably next year in, uh, in, across the UK. Fantastic. In the future, we'll have to learn how to perform self-surgery. You know, you know there's a YouTube channel. I used to watch Mojo on YouTube to learn how to play certain songs on the guitar. Look for Mojo, M-O-J-O, guitar lessons. If you've got a guitar and you don't play it very often and you're not very good, like me, Mojo's brilliant. Learn to play all the U2 songs, the Bruce songs, everything fantastic. There'll be channels like that in the future to help you cut off your own big toe because you've got gangrene. This is how bad it's getting. It's terrible. And when we really do own nothing and we are slaves to a social credit system, and the doctors have been replaced by artificial intelligence. But the AI won't perform the surgery on you because you've been a bad person. The orthopaedic surgeons will be jobless and potless too, just like you. So you can barter. I've got gangrene on me big toe, Mr. Patel. Ah, stop it. They're all Indians. They're all feckin' Indians. Uh, the surgeons in the NHS. Same in Ireland. The Indians are geniuses. I saw an Indian last year at Old Trafford in the One Day International. Mr. Patel says, yes, I'll remove it for you for one of your flans, because you make a lovely flan. Yeah? Either that or watch YouTube and do it step by step. I've spoken to people in Salford who have been waiting 11, uh, 12 months for hip replacement surgery, and they are taking the, what, do they, what, what, what are they called? Um, what are they called, dear listener? Those drugs, those pain medicines. Opioids, that's the one. They are taking opioids, it's dreadful. 11, 12 months. Pretty soon, they'll be bartering with somebody to do it for them, yeah. Uh, Danny Kruger is an MP. He was on uh, Conservative. He was on Politics Live today. He's got a book out. Recently published a book about how important, wait for it, the normative family is in society. Now, the funny thing was, and we have a wicked sense of humour, you and me, don't we, is that on the same panel as him today were, were Angela Eagle, Labour peer, and Leila Moran from the from the Lib Dems. I should say more, and shouldn't I? 
The English are morons, aren't they? Morons. It's Moran, not Moran. It's Irish. Moran. It's Moran. It's Moran. Get it right. Right, so Angela Eagle, Labour peer, Layla Moran, two gay lesbian ladies, were sitting alongside this guy, Danny Kruger, when he spoke about his book about how the normative family is very important in society. Now, I was kind of hoping this would kick off that the lesbian women would get very annoyed. It didn't really kick off, but it is kind of interesting. You will hear the presenter first. Talk about your book, um, Danny, called Covenant, The New Politics of Home, Neighbourhood and Nation. Um, We've picked out this quote. The normative family held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children, is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. Why? The only possible basis. The normative family. Man, woman, married by the by the grace of God, married before God, raising their children together, heterosexuals is the only way. How is he going to get out of this with two lesbian ladies sitting either side of him? Well, the other side of him. Well, that was a quote actually from a speech I gave, not, not the book. But the book makes the case for marriage as well, so, so thank you. Uh, the argument I'm trying to make is that what really matters to us in our lives, each of us as individuals, is the relationships that we have. And that starts with the home and the family, but it's also the relationships of our neighbourhood and of our country. And I think politics needs to reflect that. And I think it's right that government concerns itself with these things. So that's why I supported Brexit, because I think the nation matters. I'm a localist, I believe, in the neighbourhood. You say the only possible basis for a safe... Well, the basis. So, yes, thank you. So, what I didn't mean, and I, I regret that people got the wrong impression from some of the reporting from that remark in my speech, is that... This is the sound of backpedalling, dear listener. This is the only way that you can live well. Of course you can't. We all know from our own experience and well. friends and family of our own that you don't have to be married to have a stable and happy life or a good family. But the p- argument I'm making, if you'll allow me, is that I think it's right that government supports and endorses marriage and family stability in all its forms, because that is the basis of a good society. We can't just have a lot of disconnected individuals. We need to have strong relationships. Now, what does Leila Moran think? Do you not... Do you, are you against, say, a family with kids where they're happily married, but it's two mothers? No, so I'm not... Ag- I, I really, I really re- regretted this. When he said no... I suppose politicians do one thing and one thing only, with um, reliability. And that's to tell lies. He obviously doesn't like the idea of same-sex couples having children. And, um, yeah, and he just can't be honest about it. And I've explained to my gay friends over the years why I'm not thrilled myself about the idea of same-sex couples raising children. I'm not totally against it, and it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter a damn, because... Um, if gay couples want to um, have children using surrogates or if they want to adopt, they are allowed to under the law. So it matters not what I think. And by the way, I'm not a Christian. My only concern would be that I think, you know, thousands if not hundreds of thousands of years, the male, the female, the mum, the dad, those influences might be, um, might give the child a better chance of being a well-adjusted... Now, I know that there are same-sex couples who will be listening to this and saying, piss off, Richie. And some of my gay friends completely disagree with it, but some of them do agree with it and think, you know, it's maybe best for mum and dad, if possible, uh, to be to be raising a child anyway. So I regret that he didn't have the courage to say, well, actually, look, um, I have nothing against gay people whatsoever, but in fact, my personal opinion would be I'd prefer the child to have 
the dad, the masculine, and and the mum, the female present in his life, rubbing off, rubbing off on him or her and what have you. But he didn't. He took the coward's way out. Against anything. And no, thank you for asking. Absolutely not. And I completely see in all sorts of ways how so non-normative, you know, non-traditional family forms can be extremely successful. And, of course, we also all know how many normative, traditional families are unsuccessful and very dysfunctional, mm. and it would be much the best thing for everyone for them to separate. So please do not pretend that I'm suggesting no, it's I'm, the I'm only way to live. Uh, Thank you for giving me the chance question. to clear up, because I, I did get... Yeah, but, but in your speech you did say that. That's the irony. In your speech you did say normative um, family is the only way. A normative means man and woman. So you're backpedaling now like, like, like I don't know, like the clappers. Um, Criticised for saying something that I think is very, actually not contentious at all, which is that it is a good thing for people to stay together if they can. It's a good thing for children to be brought up by mm. both their parents, well, if that's possible. And that it's right for government to try and support families, because that is what most people want. Most people want to get married, stay married, bring their kids up together. And, it, and at the moment, there are so many pressures... Many of them induced by the government, by its fiscal tax and spend policy. Yeah, yeah, yawn, yawn. Uh, Angela Eagle came on to point out that poverty and deprivation and a lack of opportunities also destroy families. Points well made by Angela Eagle. But anyway, yeah. I've always gotten away with that, funnily enough, over the years. My opinion, when I say that, I'm not thrilled about same-sex couples raising children. I've always managed to get away with that. Nobody's ever come after me, really, for saying it. But I suppose they couldn't because, um, yeah, because I'd be well known as a supporter of gay rights. So they couldn't do that. Anyway, your opinions, please. Um, Lloyd says, Richie Kruger is my local MP in, how do I pronounce this? Devizes, is it? Or Devizes, Devizes. And he's an absolute, and he says, Bellend. Thank you, Lloyd. Uh, hi to Chris, who says Sajid Javid and Matt Hancock are gunning for the Zoom surgery. as They've got vested interest. Hi to Julia, who says, Richie, the thing is, you find yourself accepting it is going to be forever. As you know, says Julie, I paid for a neurologist, now being referred to a neurosurgeon. I have an appointment for May 2024 and found myself thinking, oh, eight months isn't that bad. It's now been changed to June 2024. And Julia came on one of the phone-in shows to talk about this. It's dreadful, Julia. And again, I mean it when I say it. My heart goes out to you and to anybody else who, who, who's putting up with that. It is an absolute shocker, the waiting list nonsense uh, in this country. Uh, Chris says, get ready for the hospitals to be overwhelmed by PCR-generated cases. Maybe. Nelly says, I couldn't care less if AI refused me surgery. I do not want to live on borrowed time to live another five or ten years or so in this asylum. No, thank you. Hi, Christina, says Richie. Long before COVID, I waited 12 months to have my hip replacement redone after back surgery left my hip dislocated. It was a year of eating OxyContin. Then, months of getting off of them. It's cruel this way people are being treated, says Christine. It is cruel. It is absolute cruelty. David says, divorce is awful for kids, but same-sex couples are statistically more likely to divorce. Male couples particularly so. You've got to give me a link, David, because uh, while that might very well be true, I haven't seen any evidence of that, but do share some sort of a link to that if you don't mind, my friend. Uh, okay, 23 minutes past the hour. Uh, let me go to the website because I'm neglecting the website momentarily. We've got um, Heather coming on the programme shortly you don't want to miss that and then andrew barr will join the program shortly after 6 p.m today juice for justice and you do not want to miss him either 
Baird says the gays, he says gay people, can't reproduce or make a family, so that's that. Really? Well, of course, lesbian women can reproduce. You know, using a male surrogate, of course. Faisal says, I don't have a problem with female couples, couples even, raising children, whether it's ideal or not, but not two men, it's a totally different thing. When I was younger, the point I made, and maybe I'm wrong now, when I was a younger man, I said that two men raising a child will be problematic in one or two obvious ways for the child. And that is the child's schooling and the child's socialising. Now you might shout at me, well things have changed now. And a child is unlikely to face problems in school because he or she has got two dads. And, and you might be right if you shout that at me, I don't know. But when I, was, when I first said I was against, um, not against... Against is putting it too strong. That I wouldn't be in favour, which is, that's political speak really, isn't it? I'm doing the political thing. Let's say against them. I was working for a gay man who I loved dearly. My, my, my mentor and my, my presenter who I produced, Billy. Now he had no plans on having children. And he was pretty agnostic about my opinion. Like he didn't take offence or call me a homophobe. Because he knew better. And I said, look, society's not ready for this at the time, and that was in the early noughties. Maybe society is ready for it now. I don't know. Let's, let's hear your thoughts. Um, thanks, Faisal, for that. Uh, thank you to Busy. Right, now, that's it. Music. Here we go. Uh, music, when we come back, Heather will be on the line. It is Thursday's Richie Allen Show. I'm Richie Allen. The BBG. The 14th, uh, 14th even, easy for me to say, of September 2023. Here's the Pointer Sisters. Keep those comments coming in via the app or via the website. 29 minutes past the hour. I don't ordinarily engage in a back and forth with the comments, but Baird has been back on to say that he disagrees lesbians can't reproduce. Of course they can. Did you not hear what I said? They need only get a male surrogate to donate sperm. Women can carry children. Lesbians are women, Baird. They don't need to be in love with a man. Uh, to have a baby, they can, uh, and this is how it works, often they, well not often, I shouldn't say often, but I know a, a lesbian couple who um, uh, used the sperm of a gay friend, a gay man, uh, to, to, uh, yeah, to become pregnant basically, <laughs> what am I thinking about, and, uh, and did it that way, so uh, love's got nothing to do with it mate. That's um that's romantic and it's lovely and it's old fashioned and it's great but in the case of uh, in that case it's got nothing to do with it it's it's pra- pragmatism, you know. Anyway, let's um get Heather on the program. This is very important, by the way. Uh, Heather is in Inverness and was listening to the program last week and was very interested when we talked a little bit about the nasal vaccine, the nasal flu vaccine, which I learned last year is a live attenuated vaccine. And Heather reached out, sent me a very well-written email this morning uh, to talk about how this has been around in Scotland since 2014, where she was based at the time, and uh, that, that a particular school or area was a testing ground for this, and this had an impact on her own children. Now, she's worked in the NHS, but isn't at the moment. It's lovely to welcome Heather to the programme. Good evening, Heather. How are you? You there? You are there. Hi, hi. Nice to have you on. Do you know what I did? Do you know what I did? I accidentally muted you. That's my, my apologies. I'm, I'm a bit of a plonker and it's late in the week. Lovely to hear from you. How are things in Inverness? Inverness is lovely. 
Yeah, it's good. It's all good. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, lovely. And thanks so much for um, organising the old dinner a little bit sooner so that you and I could uh, could have an after. I really appreciate that, Heather. And you're very welcome here. So tell us then about what people, because you you're concerned about the nasal flu jab, or let's call it the nasal flu vaccine being given to kids, uh, a live vaccine, and you had an experience or a negative experience with this, your children did, uh, some years ago. Do you want to start there? Yeah, in 2014, it was introduced. Um, I stayed on an island at the time. I stayed in the West Niles in a small island called Bimbicula, and it was introduced to all the schools in the West Niles, I think, um, but certainly in the primary school that my children went to in Bimbecula, it was introduced there. And the first year, I don't know why I did it, but I actually let them have the nasal flu vaccine. And the second year, um, on the consent form, when the consent form turned up, it was a yellow form and it said, tick yes or tick no. And it says, if not, why not? And I thought, that's very curious. That's a strange consent form. And because I worked in the hospital at the time and I asked the um, pharmacist there, I said, what do you know about the nasal flu vaccine? And she's like, I didn't even know kids got the flu. She said, my kids never got the flu. And um, so I asked the doctor there, uh, Dr. Johnson, who was a really lovely doctor, um, and he was he was like, oh, well, in a very rare case, a kid might get the flu. In a very, very rare case, if it's um, serious, it's probably because they've got an underlying health implication like HIV or their chemotherapy or... He says, and in very, very, very rare case, it could possibly be fatal. And I was like, okay. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, I don't know anybody in that situation. And so I ticked no, and I just put informed consent. And I remember particularly that November when the nasal flu vaccine was given, because it was very mild in Bimbecula. There were still people walking around in shorts. <laughs> right. And um, so it was just um, within the a week, within days actually, of the kids getting the nasal flu vaccine at the school, the, um, my, my sons ended up catching the flu. And first of all, they were both floored. They were both like, they couldn't lift their head off the pillow. I mean, you could have put like a pile of money at the bottom of my son's bed who loves money and he wouldn't have lifted his head up. And my other son who loved trucks at the time, you could have put the next brooder truck or other trucks that are available at the bottom of his bed and he couldn't lift his head off the pillow and um, they were both so poorly and I thought well this nasal flu vaccine isn't actually stopping anything it's spreading flu if anything and I thought that's a bit concerning for wee Johnny if he's got a compromised immune system and um, so I contacted well first of all I went back to Dr Johnson who was in the hospital and I said "I, I think the nasal flu vaccine spread the flu and he says, oh, well, I don't think that would be the case. And I kind of pushed him and he went, oh, well, I suppose it could be possible. And then I spoke to Dr. Dawson, who at the time was the head of the youth in Barra. I think she still is. Again, a really lovely doctor. And I said to her that I thought the nasal flu vaccine was spreading the flu. And she said, oh, I have nothing to do with this. She says, you need to speak to Maggie Watts, who um, was the director of public health in the NHS West Niles. Um, and so I, I sent Maggie Watts an email and I, I explained to her what had happened to my sons. And she sent me an email back, and it was just mostly the blurb about safe and effective, tested in other countries, it's been t- used for a long time, blah, blah, blah. And it was a very condescending, patronising um, reply. And it was almost like she hadn't actually heard what my initial concern was, was that I was worried that this flu was going to 
spread other people that may be too ill to get the vaccine themselves. Like if you had severe asthma, you weren't meant to get the vaccine, or if you had HIV, you weren't meant to get the vaccine. And so I'm thinking that this this is then going to spread to them, you know? This is interesting now. Heather, let's, let's do a quick recap. So the first year they had it, but the second year they didn't have it because you spoke with um, the gentleman, Dr. Johnson, and he explained that children are very unlikely to get the flu. If they do, they're unlikely to become seriously unwell. And it's, it's next to, not, next, not impossible, but it doesn't happen that children die. And you thought, great, so they don't need to have it. So they didn't have it, but they came down with the flu. Now, if I don't ask you this, I'll be murdered. So I'll ask you anyway. Did you consider for a minute that they got the flu because they didn't have the vaccine? I thought it was too coincidental. First of all, it was very mild. It was too mild for the flu to actually be about. Um, But also it was very, very coincidental that within a couple of days of the flu vaccine being given out that, that they caught the flu. And I remember probably a year later, I was speaking to the health visitor and it was just a general chit-chat and she, she said, oh, I hate giving that nasal flu vaccine. I always end up ill after giving kids nasal flu vaccines. And I just thought that was the weirdest thing ever. That like, So there's obviously a knowledge there that it can yeah. pass on the flu. I can also, back you up. Um, I can back you up, Heather. I used to tell a story when we lived in Fallowfield in South Manchester. I was offered the flu jab at the surgery I was registered with at the time. And I refused it because I've never had any jabs. And the receptionist was absolutely smothering. And she was a lovely lady. Her name was Claire. And I said, what's up with you, Claire? And that particular flu jab, they must have taken it nasally. She said it was the attenuated. She said, it's the, it's the jab that's given it to me, she said. And she yeah. was convinced of it. She knew it. And there was another receptionist there and she nodded and said, yeah, yeah, the jab can give it to you. Or somebody who's been jabbed can, can, can actually give it to you. So, yeah, this is certainly possible. And, and your two lads weren't, um, you know, just a bit unwell for three days. They were properly knackered, the two, the two guys, weren't they? Yeah, they were quite, quite ill. Um, six weeks after uh, they had got, um, caught the flu, so around about the Christmas time, they both ended up with severe sickness and diarrhea. And it was the kind of sickness and diarrhea where they'd be like really, really ill, particularly at night. It was just like sweat would be pouring off them and the, the next minute they'd be vomiting everywhere. Jeez. And they were just really, really poorly. And um, so they'd get better from that. And then after about three days, they'd been well. Maybe they'd manage into school one day and then they'd be sick again and they'd be really ill again. And for a while, I was like, what, what's going on? And I thought maybe there was something going on at the flu and um, something going on at the school. And then I realised that maybe it was something else that like they just couldn't shift, like it was something within them that they just couldn't shift. And I took them to the doctor and the doctor says, well, get a sample of their spools stool specimen yeah. <laughs> which isn't the easiest thing in the world to do when no. you've got kids that have got diarrhea <laughs> so yeah. I didn't actually manage to do that but they ended up being ill from December all the way to middle of February in the long weekend when we got off the island and we managed to get to Holland and Barrett and got some um, I think they were like bio balls that had like good bacteria in them and, and, and Heather did anybody have any um, guess even did any doctor because that's very serious illness that for children to be as, as sick as that for so long that's an emergency situation did any doctor offer any suggestion as to what it might have been that was wrong with the lads no no um, the doctor that I saw that, that wanted a stool specimen she had just said that um, to perhaps uh, 
um, that it was a bug that that they weren't shifting properly in the, their system, and so it was regrowing, and um, that's why they kept on being ill again. When I researched the nasal flu vaccine, and it turned out that under two-year-olds, um, well, under three-year-olds, two, two-year-olds, um, a, a majority of them, over 60%, is ended up in the hospital after six weeks after the nasal flu vaccine had been given with gastroenteritis. And this is this is this, this is the smoking gun, because this is what happened to your two lads. You're bang on. I I I doubled down. I doubled down on the research today to check this out. You're absolutely right. Six in ten under threes who got that came down with very very serious illness, and and it's pretty much what your lads came down with, right? But but it lasted for ages. Yeah. That's it, um, yeah. And didn't the CDC in America then the following year decide not to give the nasal jab or the nasal uh, vaccine? And yet Scotland went ahead and, and, and offered it again. Yeah, the CDC in America um, didn't recommend it. They recommended the flu vaccine in the arm. And again, I quizzed Maggie Watts and I quizzed um, Annette Stewart, who was uh, the... I thought she was a Scottish health executive when I, I spoke earlier. It turned out, when I look back on my email, she was the National Programme's Vaccination and Immunisation um, from the Health Protection Division <laughs> from Population Health Improvement Scotland Government. <laughs> I thought, what a mouthful What a mouthful. But it, but it sounds like the book stopped with her, basically. Well, yeah, she said she was um, overseeing the vaccines and immunisations, but when I challenged her again about the CDC not wanting, um, they're not recommending the vaccine. She she said, well, the JCVI have found that it's reduced hospitalizations and the JCVI have found that it's it's um, stopped cases of flu. And and so she, she said quite often that the JCVI have found this and have found that and look up the JCVI.gov and it says this and it says that. And again, she just gave me some more blurb. Um, can I, I just, um, sorry, so before you do that, can I just remind our listeners, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. We heard a lot about this group during the lockdowns and during the COVID jab rollout. It's a committee of of um, scientists who make decisions on who gets, who, who who is offered vaccines and when. And this woman was put, laying it all at the door of JCV. And I want our listeners to listen carefully to this, because what you're hearing here from Heather is evidence of corruption. And if if not corruption, if that's a bit too, if that's a bit too sensational, certainly a complete lack of interest or a lack of any inclination to investigate that the nasal vaccine could be causing harm, and could be spreading to people who didn't spreading flu to people who didn't get it, and causing harm then to to, to many people who did get it. This is fascinating. So her, her attitude was just like, um, well, it's not me, love. It's not me. Basically, it's the JCVI. So go and speak to them. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, that was that was the gist of it. And I did, I found three contacts from the JCVI and I wrote to them. Um, two of them got back, said that they didn't appreciate the fact that the nasal flu vaccine was contagious, but they'd bring it up at a meeting and then none of the two of them got back to me after that. And I just thought round about then, because I was in year three by then, and I just thought, do you know, I've done, I've done as much as I can do. And I just really just... I had had enough. And it kind of made me appreciate the fact that all those parents who say, oh, the vaccines caused autism or whatever, they've never been listened to as well. And it just really made me appreciate all that. 
kind of the other side of things. Three um, years you were on this case to find out what's going on. And how do you feel now? I mean, knowing that in the coming weeks, kids in the UK are going to have pretty much that same nasal vaccine although i'm going to be hammered for saying that because somebody somebody who knows more than i do will point out now that it will be a vaccine based on the strain of flu they, they make a guess don't they heather they make a guess on which type of flu is going to be dominant which strain and they tailor the attenuated shot based on what they think the this the, the, the prevalent variant will be but um ultimately it's most of the rest of the ingredients are the same and this is going to make, well, at least some children very sick. And the question begs to be asked, you've said it already, do children need to have a flu jab? Yeah. Do they? I mean, I mean, what, what are they saying on, on, on the media at the moment when they, when they talk about it? They're pushing this idea that the kid should have it so the kid doesn't give flu to the vulnerable person you mentioned earlier on who can't have a jab because he's, he's, he or she is an older person and they have asthma. This is how they're selling it, isn't it? Protect the population, protect granny and granddad. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the really annoying thing is that that's the person who's got to be most at harm from everybody getting a nasal flu vaccine that's possibly contagious. I think at the time as well, I found um, an NHS Leeds webpage that did say that it was a contagious vaccine for 28 days. I can't find the webpage now. And I think, like, over the couple of years after, there was articles in the the local Inverness Courier that said, do not come to hospital and visit people if your child had the flu vaccine or had a vaccine. So they do kind of know that it can be contagious. I mean, there's no two ways about that. And actually, after emailing yourself, Richie, I, I wrote an email to AstraZeneca and said, like, you know this is contagious, you know this can be harmful for elderly people and people who are under the age of two, how can you justify it? Yeah. <laughs> and just got an email back saying, oh, we'll be in touch after five days. <laughs> Nothing. We'll be in touch, yeah, and then and then radio silence thereafter, um, Heather. Yeah, probably, That's yeah, the frustrating probably. thing. And again, I, I don't say this too often anymore because it does, it does get a bit old, me saying this. But it's, it's tragic that we're talking about it here. You know, the, the legacy media should be looking into this. This should be all hands on deck because this stuff is going to be rolled out this winter. And I'm not a, nobody should take medical advice from me because I'm not an expert. But um, I wouldn't give this to a child. Based on what Dr. Johnson said to you and the other lovely doctor, the children just do not get the flu. They just don't as a rule. And therefore, why should they have something to protect against something they, they're, they're very unlikely to get? And it could cause them harm, as you said. And I like the fact you say possibly. It's um, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah. And and I suppose then the rest of us then, so we won't have a flu jab this winter. And you're saying that we might very well be in danger if we are working around people who have had it. It might explain if we get the flu. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And like even pets as well. Like some dogs have, have been having nasal flu vaccines as well. Um, my mother-in-law's sister-in-law's dog came round and was looking me in the face and she said, oh, well, at least you won't get the flu. You just had a nasal flu vaccine. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> get yeah. me out of this madhouse. Um, yeah, it's just, it's quite horrible, Richie. It really is. And it, it's horrible to think that your kids are going to be in a class full of other kids that have 
had this, you know, that you can't you can't do very much about that other than keep them off school for twenty eight days. What else can you do about that? Would you and consider she, Would you consider that, Heather? I mean, I know that will bring uh, its own yeah, problems. I would, love yeah. to. I would love to. I would love to. Unfortunately, my partner's a teacher, and he's very against homeschooling. I think I was one of the few few parents that really enjoyed homeschooling when the kids were home from school during the COVID. You enjoyed thing. it, did you? You got stuck oh, in. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I really did. Um, but yeah, my my partner's just not for it at all. We're not um, going to give too much away about you. You're obviously an educated lady. Um, uh, you know your stuff. You worked in a hospital. Can I ask you about your your your, your partner who's a teacher? Um, does your partner share your concerns about these jobs? Um, not not really. I I don't think he does as much as I do. I don't think he sees the implications of it all as much as I do um, I think because of like after what happened with the nasal flu vaccine and then I think they'd introduced the hepatitis B vaccine to children newborn yeah. babies in America um, and I just I just found the whole thing totally bizarre so when my youngest came along Robert I just decided I wasn't going to vaccinate him at all and I made that decision. <laughs> I didn't tell my partner. <laughs> so when he found out, there was like a whole ruckus and I was trying to prove my point as to why he shouldn't be having certain vaccines and my partner was trying to prove why he should be. And there was a whole big ruckus about that. So I'm so glad that happened just before the whole COVID thing hit because I think it kind of opened his eyes up a lot more about like the possibility of dangers to vaccines because I think he was so in that programme of no vaccines are safe and they're good and they help people and which I had been in, but I think he was so totally in that narrative that it was really, it was a good thing that that happened, really, that opened his eyes up, I think. It opened his eyes up. Speaking of hepatitis B, I remember a couple of years ago doing a bit of research to find out the the, the odds of a baby contracting hepatitis B. And then if the baby did, and this is a baby under three or a baby under five, and if they did, what was the likelihood that it would become serious for them, chronically serious? And um, I think, if memory serves, the odds of a kid getting hepatitis B uh, somewhere one between 1 and 3% of kids aged 5 or younger do come into contact with it. But of those numbers of kids who do, it's less than 0.5% or something of that number that actually gets serious hepatitis B. So, again, you don't have to be a mathematician to make the point that there's really not much point in a wide-scale programme to immunise children under five with hepatitis B. It makes no sense whatsoever. But yet they're yeah, doing it. I, I just think it's criminal, Richie, really, because it's, it's given sometimes on the first day of birth as well. Like in America, the first day of birth, and you just think, why? You know, you've not even got any kind of immune system going on at that time. It's just, it really does, it bothers me something terrible. Can I ask you this? Because look, look at how quickly the time goes when, 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 when you're talking about something really important and interesting. And thanks for getting in touch and coming on, uh, I Heather. really appreciate it, Richie. Thank you. No, so I, appreci- I appreciate you. You left the NHS and you left it. Uh, it, it, it sounded reading your email that, OK, look, um, it, had, it had gotten pretty bad. But there was a bit of regret and a bit of remorse kind of tinged. In the, in the email. It's not in a great place, the National Health Service, at all. And that's the understatement of the year, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it really is so bad. I, I, I just don't understand why, like, wear masks and things like that. It's just removing you from patient care. It's just taking you further away from being able to be a good 
a good nurse or a good healthcare assistant or even a good doctor or a patient because they're not seeing your face. You're they're not you're not able to relate to people very well when you've got a mask on. The whole thing's a bit daft. But um yeah. how, how did you get on during the you know, during twenty twenty? Um I I couldn't believe people were going along with it. I kind of knew it was going to happen, Richie. You know how sometimes you say that um, oh, I didn't see it coming, and I think, oh, I did. <laughs> you saw I did, it. I did see it coming because there were so many films on Amazon. There were so many films that were that were sort of like geared up to a virus breakout. You know, there was like Contagion, and there was all these other films, and some of them were quite good films, but it was all very much a virus that broke out. You know. So I, I kind of suspected something was happening. And then I remember watching a program. I was a, a special carer at the time. And the gentleman that I used to look after used to tape stuff off Sky Plus and then watch it later on when I was there. And this program, his comedy program he was watching, had Boris Johnson's dad, Joanna Lumley, a comedian. And they were all talking about it. And Boris Johnson's dad started saying, what we need is a virus. We need a virus to wipe people out. I mean, yeah. he's saying this on telly. And the audience are clapping and laughing. And I was just like, this this is mortifying. Why, why are people clapping and laughing to this? And I know it's a studio audience and there's probably a big light above them that says applause, you know, and they're applauding. It. And you just think, wow, that is so broken. And I kind of knew then, I kind of knew that that was going to be, you know, that, that was going to be the thing. That's it just really, really bothered me. Really interesting. And the late uh, Duke of Edinburgh, one at one time, you probably know this too, the late Duke of Edinburgh at one time suggested he'd like to come back as a plague after after he died to wipe out most of humanity. And he didn't say that um, for a gag, for a laugh, the Duke of Edinburgh. Now, he did die eventually, and maybe, who knows, maybe maybe his wish was granted in the afterlife. Maybe he's coming back as some uh, as some genuine virus. I shouldn't joke about that, but yeah, I, I can only, I've heard from so many ex-nurses, ex-healthcare uh, professionals who've been on this programme who said similar and were glad to leave, but with a heavy heart too, because you only got into it to do good, Heather. I know that. People don't get in, uh, don't get into healthcare to not do good. You know, and it must be heartbreaking to be trying to communicate with people through a mask, people who can't understand you. And I don't know, I, I, it must have been terrible during that period. But um, yeah, wow. You did it though. Yes. Um, I, I'm really grateful that you were there actually. It was Dr. Vernon Coleman, remember, <laughs> you had Vernon, him on, yeah. on several times. I looked up him because he had helped me before in his books when, when things were going wrong. And. Um, I think it was the 20th Century Blues or something his book was called. It was a really brilliant book. And um, so I looked up Vernon Coleman and he said that he was going to be on your show and that's how I found your show. But I've just really loved listening Fantastic. to your show. Fantastic. It's so he, nice. Well, thanks and to Vernon so for nice. that. He, he also wrote a brilliant book years ago about how your... I mean, the, the title was designed, obviously, to grab attention, but the book itself was excellent. I read it years ago, long before I met him. Uh, and that was um, something along the lines of why your GP is more likely to kill you than to cure you. Something along uh, those <laughs> lines, yeah. But um, yeah. very, very good read, uh, Heather, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we go into the winter season. Look there, before, we've, we've got two or three minutes left, before we uh, say goodbye today, 
there's been a little bit of talk recently about variants and in the United States there's a lot of talk about the return of mask mandates. Um, I do not want to be negative, but I've got to talk about it because it's happening. What 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 are your thoughts? Do you do you expect as we get into October, November, that the calls for masks in certain settings might start to become a bit louder? How do you see it going? I work in a supermarket now, Richie, because I'm I'm not doing care work if you need to take a vaccine. So I, I now work in a supermarket, and I've had several people coming up to me recently asking if we sell masks or if we sell vaccine testing kits and things like this and I just want to shake them and tell them to wake up but I was saying to one of my colleagues um, I said that it's a bit weird that uh, they must be ramping up the fear on the media because people are coming in and asking for these things and he says oh well he says there's this new variant and they can't put in the vaccine yet and he goes I'm on my seventh vaccine oh my god (laughs) what what you're on your my gosh I just I, I just despair I just want to shake people sometimes I really do I think they're ramping up the fear because they're wanting people to take the next vaccine. And I think that's what it is. I don't think it'll come to anything. I think they're just wanting people to, to run off and the get job. the next vaccine. Yeah. And I think they're just ramping up the fear for that. But I, I was... I, yeah, I just... I, I don't know. I just despair. My neighbour, one of my neighbours that I used to be a home carer for, um, I, t- I told her at the time, I actually wrote a letter and, and posted it through all my neighbours' house about like why they didn't want to take the vaccine. And I told her to her face why she didn't want to take the vaccine. And she says, oh, if it's good enough for the Queen, it's good enough for me. My God. And then like when I, <laughs> when I left her in February, I think she had had it. And then I went back to see her in the July when we went back for a holiday. And she, her arm was purple. Richie, the whole of her arm was purple, and she had this huge, massive lump on her arm where the vaccine probably went in. And it was, it was the size of a ping pong ball or a golf ball. And I'm not exaggerating that size. That's the size that it was. And I, I said to her, what, "What's that?" And she's prodding it and poking it. And she says, "Oh, they said it was a blood clot, and they're not going to do anything about it." And her arms sort of like slowly going purple, you know, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. And I realized then that she only had like weeks to live, you know, she can't really survive with your arm dying. No. Um, and so it really just bothers me that like people don't appreciate the fact that these things are fucking killing people. And well, I, they I know are. That they are. Look, I've got to do for my job. Look, they're not killing everybody, but we know that they they, they are disproportionately harming people and they seem to be doing more harm than any recent vaccine rollout in recent times we know this because of the reporting they are harming people you're right heather and we've got stone silence from the media we've got anybody who speaks out about it uh, being um destroyed publicly through social media and uh, you know we've had people lose their jobs over it, it it's a, a wretched situation but you know i i have a feeling that despite the media's attempts to cover it up, and I think I can say that, it's fair to say that, um, it's in the community people are, are, are realising it. They can't prevent people from witnessing what's going on in their own neighbourhoods, and that gives me some hope, Heather. I'm going to give you the final word, 30 seconds. Brilliant to meet you today. Thanks for coming on oh, and sharing you so, that. Thank so much, Richie. Not I at really, all. really appreciate it, and I really appreciate telling what happened to my sons and letting people know that what what happened. I really appreciate your programme. Thank you so, so much. You're very kind in giving people, you know, a little bit more consent or a little bit more information before they make that decision for their own teenagers in school. Heather, in lovely Inverness, lovely to meet you. I'm sure we'll meet again and thanks for coming thank on today. You. Bye Take for care. now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Brilliant. Heather in Inverness. Um,
What a beautiful speaking voice too, eh? It's uh, 90 seconds to the top of the air. Um, yeah, look, there's no point in me going through them because you've sent through dozens and dozens of messages. Uh, Les has been on to say, Hi, Les. Richie, I never understood getting the flu jab, which is basically giving your body the flu. Well, in fact, you mightn't have got it in that particular year in the first place. Now, Les, I... There's no point in me being the devil's advocate, but I might as well have a go at it anyway, in this instance. But I remember asking a doctor, long before I heard anything negative about vaccines, going back many years ago, what is it, doc, what is it? The doctor said to me, Richie, it's a little bit of the flu, just a little bit the antibodies. And then your body builds up, uh, sorry, a little bit of the flu, a little bit of the virus. And then your body recognises that you might be a little bit uh, sore for a day. You might have a little bit of a cough. Or your nose might run for a day, Richie, because it's only a little bit of the virus. But what happens is, then, as the winter sets in, when you're exposed to the actual flu, you won't get it because your body will recognise it. And it's got the antibodies ready to go. That's what we were told. Now, the doctors who told me this, they weren't liars. Now, I'm not saying they were right, by the way. Um, but they weren't liars. This is how they understood it. The vaccine. The idea is we introduce your body to a little bit of a foreign agent, which isn't good for you. And the body builds up the antibodies, blah, 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 blah. That's how they understood it for years and years and years. The COVID jabs, or at least three of the four major or main COVID jabs, were not attenuated live virus jabs. They were mRNA jabs. But again, there were people who dispute that, and we've had those people on this programme. The time is exactly uh, 6 o'clock. It's just gone 6 o'clock, in fact. Do not forget uh, that uh, Andrew Barr will be on the programme shortly. A very, very interesting man is Andrew. Uh, He founded a group called Jews for Justice. He's an author, too. He wrote a book called Wine Snobbery, Pinot Noir and Drink, An Informal Social History. That's right up my street, that. Because I like the odd glass of wine, three, five and seven. No, no, I like the odd glass of wine, but I know nothing about it. Wine snobbery, I like that. But um, he was very interested in how people like Andrew Bridgen and the GB News presenter, Neil Oliver, were attacked and accused of anti-Semitism. And he sees it, does Andrew, as the weaponization of anti-Semitism. It's like ad hominem, isn't it? It's like an ad hominem attack, right? Neil Oliver and Andrew Bridgen are talking about the harms that uh, some people have felt or have been affected by the COVID jabs and that anti-Semitism or accusations of it were used as a weapon to smear Bridgen and Neil Oliver uh, to try and discredit what it was they were saying about vaccines. I'm not putting words in Andrew's mouth, but we'll talk to him in a couple of minutes' time about this. It's very important. Keep your comments coming in. RichieAllen.co.uk That is um, where you can leave a comment, comment live, or if you haven't before, download the Richie Allen Show app to your smart device. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at RichieAllen.co.uk And thank you so much for your messages. You're very good to me, don't you know? Hey, listen, before we um, welcome Andrew to the programme, this programme will be nine years old tomorrow. Yeah. The 15th of September 2014. The very first one from a bedroom in Fallowfield with, with equipment that was just 
just about good enough for broadcast at the time. It, it had been built by the amazing Paul Ripley. And we went live that night at 8 o'clock. The very first one was was live. I had a, a load of guests on. I think I had four or five guests. I was very ambitious back then, working by myself. Hayden Hewitt was one of the guests on the night, in fact. I think Jim Mars was on was on that very first um, uh, show. It's nine years old tomorrow. I'm not going to thank individually right now um, the dozen or so people who've been hugely important in the show remaining on air. Uh, but the dozen or so people, they know who they are, you know, who've come up with a couple of bob here and there, but not just the money. Uh, their counsel, uh, their wisdom, their advice have been has been invaluable. So they know who they are without me. Because if I try and name them, I'll forget somebody and I'll be I'll be abused uh, quite rightly later on. But you, you've stuck with it as well for, for nine years and you haven't really given up on it. And sometimes you have given up on it. You've been annoyed by something I've said or you've heard, but you came back. And every month you find a couple of quid to send to it to keep it on the air. So um, I will love you to, to my dying day for that, for keeping it alive, because it is an independent radio show. It isn't owned by, um, it isn't um, beholden to special interest groups or, or corporations. It isn't. It's completely independent. It is a completely 100% free speech zone. You know, we feature people on the show that they can't really get a hearing anywhere else. And that's important more than ever as time kind of goes on. So I'll be happy tomorrow celebrating the nine years. I didn't think it'd last more than a couple of years. That's genuine. That's not fishing for compliments. It's difficult to ask people to uh, effectively support something financially that they could otherwise get for free because the programme is free to wear and it always will be. But you do pop up with a couple of bob, as I've already said, and as long as you continue to do so, we'll have a radio programme. So thank you. Tomorrow the Richie Allen Show is nine years old. If you have a beer tomorrow or a glass of wine, and if you're a teetotal and you raise, I don't know, a, a zero zero beer, or if you have a glass of Sidona, I don't know what it is, um, don't toast me. Do not toast me, God forbid it, but toast the programme that it endures and that it will continue, and it will continue, because I don't plan on going anywhere soon. Nine years old tomorrow. Thank you very much for everything. Uh, before we say hi to, to, to Andrew, here's Bob Seeger and Get Out of Denver. Get out of Denver, better go! Bob Seeger, Get Out of Denver on The Richie Allen Show. It is uh, Thursday's programme. Um, just waiting to connect with Andrew there. Uh, there's an issue momentarily. We'll get it sorted. I'm going to get it sorted while I'm chatting with you. So uh, I'm going to grab the old mobile number, which I've got dialed in as well. It's good to have the old mobile number as backup, isn't it? That is production 101 right there. Have the mobile number as backup. Dag nabbit. Let me just key that in there. And it's UK. That's the one. Fantastic. Copy and paste. Off we go. Let's get Andrew on the program. Lovely. I did that very smoothly, didn't I? I didn't, I didn't. Eight and a half minutes past the hour. The Richie Allen Show. Let's welcome the founder of Jews for Justice, Andrew Barr, to the programme. Andrew, good evening, and you're very welcome. How are you? Hello, good evening, Richie. Lovely to have you on. I tried the, the other way, but there's a problem. Sometimes there is. Thank God for belt and braces, Andrew. Thank God for right. belt and braces. So I, I, I did the build-up already. I've let people know who you are. A lot of listeners seem to know uh, who you are. They've read The Skeptic. They've, they've heard you speak with Toby Young. Why did you start, um, found 
Jews for Justice? What was it? What was the catalyst? Well, it was 2021, and it was a time when there were, the vaccine rollout had recently started, and there was an attempt to coerce people to take the vaccine and to stigmatise the unvaccinated. And it seemed pretty obvious to me, and in fact a number of us, that it was very scarily comparable to the stigmatisation of Jews in 1930s Germany, the othering of them, the idea that they were actually threatening the stability of society by refusing to take part in this campaign. So there was that. There was also the Nuremberg Code issue that there were a number of freedom campaigners who were trying to warn that the vaccine rollout was a breach of the Nuremberg Code and regime-compliant Jews were shouting them down, saying, you're not allowed to say that. And I thought, well, as Jews, we're in a stronger position to be able to speak out and say, yes, actually, it is a breach of the Nuremberg Code. This is trying to force people to take an untested medical experiment with informed consent. It is explicitly forbidden by the Nuremberg Code. And people can't tell us we can't say that. They can argue with us. But... Once they're arguing with us, we're in a debate. And that's all we wanted in the first case, was to have a debate. So that's where we came from at the beginning. Were you surprised by this when this happened? Was this, did this come out of left field for you, Andrew? For me, personally, not, not entirely. I mean, I remember when the lockdown was announced. And my first reaction, because my background as an historian, was to say, my God, this is a Reichstag fire. In other words, the fire of the German parliament building in 1933 that enabled the Nazis to take power in Germany. And the point about the Reichstag fire is that nobody's ever completely established to this day whether it was started by a communist pyromaniac, whether he was egged on by the Nazis, whether the Nazis did it and tried to blame it on him. And in a way, it didn't matter because the purpose of it and the effect of it was that they passed something called an enabling act, which is exactly what they then did in 2020, and exactly, ironically, what Israel did in 2020, an enabling act giving them complete power to override the Weimar Republic Constitution, which was a very stable constitution protecting human rights. So exactly what happened in 2020. It was a scary replay of history. And you mentioned there that when people, when, when Jews raised their heads above the parapet to make this comparison with the othering, you said that prominent Jews in, maybe in politics, maybe in the media, were shouting them down. How, was that particularly disturbing at the time, that? I, it didn't surprise me it, and I don't think it surprised the rest of us who came into our group. I mean, what, what, what bothered us was that we're still not that many. We're still only 40, 50 in our group. It's been quite a struggle to recruit Jews who see what is happening because there's been a tendency amongst Jews for, for centuries to try and find security by assimilating into the prevailing society and Blending by in. buying into the system. Blending in, yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what they tried to do in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. So you would have thought they would have learned from that that it didn't actually work. But it's happened again here. 
and I think also it's it, it's quite simply that Jews have a reverence for doctors and dentists and other medical professionals. So they really, as a group, have been very wary about putting their heads above the parapet and speaking out against what's going on. Because of that, do you think, maybe, maybe I should leave this for a bit later on, this question, do you think that um, Jewish folks may have been slightly more quick to come forward to be jabbed than other groups in society? I... I don't know the answer to that. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, obviously, Israel was a different and very particular example um, in which the Israeli government essentially sold the Israeli people to Pfizer, supposedly, because Israel, I mean, it's true that Israel is constantly under threat from its neighbours, and that was a supposed reason. But you could argue equally that the reason why the Israeli government sold the Israeli people to Pfizer for their experiment was because Israel is, has been under the sum of the US deep state and essentially does what it's told. You can argue that either way. That fair, fair play to you for saying that. I have, um, yeah, I, I, I often speak to former um, Assistant Treasury Secretary Paul Craig Roberts and he agrees with yeah. you that the Israelis are under the sum of the military security complex as he calls it in America. We should someday in the near in, in the future when you've got a bit of time talk about geopolitics because we might have a little bit of a good debate, a bit of an argument which is no harm. We like a good argument uh, yeah, historians. Yes, yeah, it's another issue. It's another I'm issue. No, but, no, but brilliant. Yeah. No, I'm d- d- delighted to be chat- chatting with you, Andrew. So, when journalists or l- like, like Neil Oliver or in the case of um, Andrew Bridge and politicians, when they attempt to, um, you know, start a discourse on whether the jabs are harmful or not, and you see them being accused of anti-Semitism, that's, I've already used the term distasteful, I don't want to be repeating myself, but to a Jewish gentleman, that's that's not nice when you see that, right? So this is obviously a big, this is stuck in your craw because you've written about this for the Daily Skeptic. It's a brilliant article, actually. I've tweeted it uh, a few times. Um, you, you call it weaponizing anti-Semitism. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, it's an abuse of our history. It's an abuse of our name. And it particularly bothers me because a lot of uh, Jewish organizations that claim to represent Jews, so-called official organizations like the Jewish Board of Deputies, they're kind of patsies in this whole process. So they're always keen to support anyone who complains about anti-Semitism. And so you had this in the case of Andrew Bridgen when it was obviously a manufactured attack on him that these Jewish organizations said, yes, how appalling it was of Andrew Bridgen to make the reference to the Holocaust in the same sentence as a reference to vaccine rollout. And then the extraordinary case of Neil Oliver, which essentially was to do with an attack on GB News, where Mark Stein had recently effectively been constructively dismissed by GB News because he refused to bow down to the Ofcom regime. And the enemies of GB News thought, well, the next person we can get rid of is Neil Oliver, and mounted an attack on Neil Oliver via The Guardian, And it was an extraordinary attack in which he was accused, essentially, of having had on his show a person who was a member of the same group as another person who had written articles that were or could be construed as anti-Semitic. It was this whole issue about anti-Semitic Trumps, so-called. That is, I mean, in Neil Oliver's case, he'd referred to a one-world government, and apparently... I, I. 
personally, I hadn't even been aware that it was supposed to be an anti-Semitic trope. And obviously, Neil didn't mean it as that. He was talking about the new world order that we're worried about. Yeah, the global governance. I, I, will, yeah, yeah. I, I will say this because I've interviewed everybody over the years um, with every opinion. And when some people say one world government, uh, and maybe it's a small number of people or... Yeah, but when some do, yeah, they they do mean Jews. There's no doubt about that. When some say yeah. Illuminati, um, they they don't have the courage to say Jews. Now I've had people on this program over the years who, whatever we might think about their opinions, they've had courage and they've had the decency to say what it is they really think. And I've had people on this program over the years who um who say the Jews do. Um, run everything. I had a very funny guy on here some years ago who was running for Congress in California and was doing okay in the primaries and he tried to convince me that Jews have an evil gene. Let's clear it up, Andrew. Do you have an evil an evil gene in your body? I'm guessing you don't, right? But um, but this guy said it out yeah. loud, you know. It, it just It is one of those things. So some people do mean Jews, some do, and won't say it, yeah. but the majority do mean global governance, that there is a desire for supranational organisations to take over the running of things that sovereign states would have had elected governments do. And I think you summed it up brilliantly in your article. That's what Neil Oliver was getting at. Yeah, I think there's several things that come from that. One yeah. is you can't look into someone's heart. That's the problem with all these attempts to define anti-Semitism, all these issues about whether someone is or is not a Holocaust denier or a Holocaust revisionist, is that you're actually trying to look at their motivation, whether they're saying what they're saying because they genuinely believe it's a subject that needs to be researched further and they genuinely disagree with what's been published or because they don't like Jews. And it's quite difficult then, unless they actually say something that is derogatory of Jews as people, it's very hard to say, well, actually they are anti-Semitic. Yeah. So that's, that's one issue. Um, the issue about evil is, is quite interesting because the Jewish perception of this thing is completely different from the, the Christian one. So, I mean, as you know, I know you've spoken to people like the Reverend Jamie Franklin on your program. Yeah. There is a big movement and group of Christians who are speaking out against all the nonsense and have said that the Church of England is on the wrong side and have been discussing whether to leave the Church of England or fight against it from the inside. They have a very different perception of what's going on from Jews, because the Christian perception is there's a battle between good and evil, whereas Jews don't see that at all. In, in the Jewish view of the world, there's no such thing as an evil person. Everyone can and be saved. Everyone can make their amends with God. Everyone has the capacity to do good or evil things themselves. And the, the, the period coming up tomorrow for the next 10 days is the, the 10 days of atonement during which Jews are meant to look at their lives, their behavior, and see how they can improve themselves. And my big plea would be that all the Jews who have bought into the message from the regime, who have tried to push the vaccines, who closest synagogues have tried to push masks on people, that they would have a look at the way they've behaved these last three years and think again. Andrew Barr is our guest. Andrew founded Jews for Justice. Um, he's on the line. Uh, he's going to stay with us till the end of the programme today. Needless to say, the interest in this is massive. Comments on the app and a uh, huge number of comments flying in on the website comment uh, comment live. And that's really interesting, That what, what you said there about the approach to the idea of evil. I didn't know any of this, you see. 
Um, so, so that's very interesting to me. Um, let me just read a couple of comments that have come in, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, sure. That's uh, Andrew. Let's let's bring them up. Yeah, a number of people are asking me about Corbyn. Um, a number. So we'll yeah. we'll do about ten messages here. Richie, yeah. would Andrew agree? is that given that Corbyn had submitted more early-day motions in the Commons in matters relating to Jewish people than any other MP, any attack on him regarding claims of him being anti-Semitic could actually be construed as anti-Semitism itself? Uh, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I, I wouldn't go that far, but definitely anti-Semitism was weaponized against Jeremy Corbyn to bring him down. I mean, various, there was a whole, there were various different interest groups who wanted to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. There were the Jewish organizations I mentioned earlier who don't like the fact, didn't like, don't like the fact that he pushes the Palestinian cause all the time. There are the, the, the Blairites in the Labour Party, who obviously didn't like the fact that the hard left had taken over. And there was a British deep state, which was determined not to allow him to get anywhere near his power. And they tried various different means of attacking Corbyn when he was chosen as Labour leader. leader. They tried to accuse him of being a Russian spy. They tried to accuse him of being a misogynist. I think they tried to accuse him of being a homophobe as well. And none of these stuck. All of these he pushed back against. And the one that stuck, I think partly because these Jewish organizations were pushing hard against him anyway, because of his attitude to Israel, was the issue of alleged anti-Semitism. I don't think he pushed back hard enough against it. And he spent his entire leadership fighting against it, which obviously ruined his leadership because he wasn't able to get the focus on the issues he wanted to put forward. So, yeah, he was definitely a victim of weaponized anti-Semitism. And the point I try to put across is that it's used as a weapon, these allegations of anti-Semitism, against anyone who diverts from the mainstream narrative, whether they're left-wing, such as Jeremy Corbyn or Ken Livingstone or indeed Diane Abbott more recently, or whether they're right-wing, such as Andrew Bridgen or more small-c conservatives, such as Neil Oliver. And you've got this in a moment in the US with... One of the reasons why Tucker Carlson was kicked out by Fox was because of an attack on him by the anti-defendant And now, now going after Elon Musk and Twitter. This is a big fight going on at the moment. And it's exactly the same thing. You might not agree with the tone of this question now or the way I put it. But why is it, do you think, in your opinion, that there is more of a fear of being accused of anti-Semitism, of either loathing or hating Jews, than there is an than there is a fear of being accused of hating other um, minority groups in in the country, and, and I've had a little bit of experience with this. I don't want to get into that because this is not about me, but um, I would have had people on this program over the years being hypercritical of Islamic culture. I would have had people on yeah. the program being hypercritical of other cultures. And that would never stop um, or prevent a guest coming on the show. A guest has never said to me, I can't come on with you because of your associations, because of your interviewees. But whereas I've had people on this program who've said some pretty appalling things about Jews and, you know, about Jewish culture, um, that seems to be taken as far more seriously. It's far more fearful for people. 
Am I wrong, first of all? And if I'm not, why is that? Um, I actually don't know if you're right or not. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting topic to discuss. And I think one of the things might well be that the Jewish lobby, if you want to call it that, is well-organized and influential. It's quite effective. I mean, I don't like it being called the Israeli lobby. This happens uh, quite a lot. Um, because obviously, Israel has its own political interests, which often coincide with these Jewish, British Jewish organizations, who are all very pro-Israel, pro-Zionist. But it's not Israel kind of pushing agenda here. It's British pro-Zionist groups pushing what they believe in and the cause they believe in, which coincides with the Israeli cause. So they will support each other. I don't know the answer to your question, though, Richie. No, no, fair enough. No, and yeah, it is. It's 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 deep that, and I might I might not be right. It's only been my experience that um, you know it's it's a bit more dangerous to host um, somebody who um, dislikes uh, Jews or hates Israel or or whatever than it is to host somebody else. Like there are. There are implications and there are consequences, as shows like this have found out. Like you, you'll know that Desmond Swain was told that he would have the whip removed if he ever appeared on this program again. Not because of I, anything I ever said, yeah, but I'd want to get into I, me because I'm not important at all that, here. Yeah. yeah, I'm not important at, at all. It's not about me. But um, the, these, and we can of course broaden this out away from the anti-Semitism issue where we were talking on the program earlier. Um, about about the the Irish singer Roisin Murphy, who made a comment yeah. about that you know the drugs might be, the the puberty blocking drugs might not be a good thing, and the BBC have taken her music um off a program that it was due to be scheduled on. These are, I mean, it, it sounds like a cliche now. I'm boring myself, and it sounds a bit sensationalist, but these are crazy times, Andrew, aren't they? These are mad times to be living in. Yes, and I I tend to feel revolved sitting in the eye of a storm but then you see traditional feminists who also probably have the same sense of sitting in the eye of a storm and can't imagine what's going on around them the trans issue is used in exactly the same way as the anti-semitism issue as far as i can see it's whatever can be used to silent dissent silence dissent is used whatever works so it goes back to this jeremy corbyn thing you, they look around See what tool's going to work and use that one. Should programmes, radio programmes, television programmes, should they interview people who say the Holocaust never happened? Should those people be um, afforded a platform on the national or commercial media? I think if you don't discuss, with, I mean, to use, let's use the term Holocaust and I know it's not a really ideal term because you have this whole gray area between Holocaust and I who say there was no Holocaust, it was all made up, and Holocaust revisionists who say, well, it was massively exaggerated. I would be personally very happy to debate these people because I don't, I think if you, I've noticed this actually in the freedom movement in the last few months. A lot of people have been saying the way you know something is true is when it gets suppressed. So the same applies to the whole issue about Holocaust denial is that there are, there's actually a big problem in the freedom movement of 
a lot of Holocaust denial, stroke Holocaust revision, stroke anti-Semitism. And that is coming from the fact that the, the attempts to suppress Holocaust denial and to, and to stop people saying anything that is, can possibly be described as anti-Semitic. And so all these freedom fighters automatically think, well, it must be true because we're told we can't touch it. So, yes, you've got to be prepared to debate. That's fascinating. The That's fascinating. The, the, the idea that it's never talked about or acknowledged might lead to some people thinking, well, this is what the media does, this is what the establishment does when it wants yeah. to keep something quiet, and that might lead some people down uh, certain rabbit holes. Because I've interviewed, I think, two people over the years um, who who have said it 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 either never happened in 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 the one case, and in a, in another case it was somebody who said that they don't believe that Jews were gassed that they were machine gunned to death or 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 or, or otherwise. And um, I've Jewish friends and I have Jewish um, uh, business partners and I have a Jewish accountant who I'm very fond of, and they were kind of split really on whether it's the right thing to do to speak to people like that. But they weren't in any way dogmatic at all, even though they were split. Um, you know, one of the guys was like, yeah, bring him on and just poke holes in, in his narrative, which which I did. And the other guy's like, ah, why waste your time talking to these Egypts, Richie? So it was almost like benign responses to that particular question. But you'd be of the belief that to, to send anything underground is dangerous. Put everything out in the light of day, have a proper discussion about it. And if you do that, you believe, Andrew, the truth will always come to the surface, right? No, I don't think it necessarily no? will always come to the surface. And I think one won't actually change other people's minds. But the alternative is worse. It's a bit like this argument that people say, well, well I know the world has changed now. But people used to say that democracy is the worst political system except for all the other political systems. <laughs> Equally, free speech is the worst system you can think of, except for all the other systems that exist for controlling and uh, regulating discourse. And I, I think that's the problem. It's, no, it's not ideal. I'm not sure if I'm a free speech absolutist, but I've got to be prepared to argue against Holocaust denial, Holocaust revisionists. Uh, I mean, the whole question about the gas chambers in Auschwitz, which is a very complicated technical argument, is that Holocaust denial or Holocaust revisionism? I don't know. I mean, if you're not saying that yeah. Jews didn't die, you're just arguing about how people die. And if you look at serious historical scholarship on the Holocaust, and there is a vast amount of it, it changes all the time as people do new research and find new material in archives in all kinds of countries, like Poland, for example. And there has been a move in recent years towards saying, yes, far more Jews and others were murdered by being shot over pits than were gassed in gas chambers. Yeah. So that's now the mainstream opinion. That's interesting that, yeah, an Irish uh, journalist was um, was hammered for saying something similar some years ago, uh, writing for the Irish Times. Um, we've got Andrew Barr on the show, Jews for Justice. You'll find the group on Telegram. A number of our listeners are kind of annoyed, not with you, Andrew. They're annoyed that um, it's very difficult to find anything about you or Jews for Justice on Google. I guess that wouldn't yes. surprise you at all. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It, it's partly that. It, it's partly we ha we haven't got a website for all kinds of reasons. I'm on 
Twitter, and I think you put up my Twitter handle, and there's a link to the group's Twitter, although the group doesn't tweet that much because we all have, I mean, we're all independent thinkers, so we have rows about everything. So we have rows about what we're going to tweet because we have different views on everything. Um, So my thing is a bit more consistent. The website is coming. The Telegram group is private, not least because of all the anti-Semitism that you encounter on Telegram because it's a completely free speech arena. And the minute you notice this with other people's channels on Telegram, the minute anything to do with Judaism or the Holocaust or Israel is mentioned, you get a torrent of what is genuinely anti-Semitic abuse. So that's one problem. Another problem is there are other groups with Jews and justice in the name, and it tends to be used for kind of social justice warrior campaigns. There's some groups in the U.S., I mean, we mean justice in the, the, the Jewish sense, which is not the same as English sense, which is essentially it's a Hebrew word called Zedek, which means that you follow the path of your conscience, wherever that might lead you, whatever the obstacles are in the way. And that's what we're about. Um, mean, yeah. We're finding our way. Some of us are religious and find it from. We've just lost Andrew momentarily there. I'll try and get him back up. The call was fading. So I'll just end the call and uh, dial him back there. Let me just dial him back and we'll get him back. Fascinating conversation, this Andrew Barr, the founder of Jews for Justice. Let's see, can we get him back on the line? The time is exactly 25 and a half minutes to the top of the hour. It's uh, Thursday's Richie Allen show with me, Richie Allen. I might just have his answer machine. I do, I have his answer machine. Very good, so I'm just going to stop that. And he's, he's calling me now. Uh, there you are. The call dropped out momentarily. Sorry about that, Andrew. Yes, it, it just went. I mean, that's, that's mobiles for you. Would you like me to call you back? Uh, no, that's fine, don't worry. You're fine? We, we've got about 15 minutes left anyway. Yeah, so that's, that's absolutely fine. Again, again, you mentioned this in the email, how the, the, the perception of justice, how it differs between Jewish people in the Jewish culture. And here, that's fascinating. You you go wherever your conscience takes you, regardless of what, essentially whether you like it or not, this is the direction yes. you should go in. But, but, but Richie, it's also a difference here between secular Jews and religious or very religious Jews. So there's the entire spectrum of opinion within Judaism. And it, I mean, Jews are famously argumentative and it's always said you get two Jews in the room, you have three opinions. So a lot of people will tell you that Judaism says, I mean, this is part of the issue over the whole COVID thing, is I was initially trying to look for a rabbi on our side who would explain how Jewish religious law, halakha, supported uh, our position that masks were forbidden, that you weren't allowed to take the vaccine, that lockdown was actually forbidden by the Torah or the Talmud. And you can find, I have found rabbis who say that, you can also find rabbis who say the opposite. And if you look in the Jewish book of religious law, the the Talmud, you can actually find an argument to support pretty much anything. So you have to go back to your own moral principles, I think. Um, When you said about the, on, on Telegram, and the anti-Semitism, and it's yeah. the Jews, it's the Jews. I'm genuinely disappointed about that. I'm not virtue signalling. I swear to God I am not. I'm disappointed in it because I thought when the lockdown happened, and when the jabs happened, and so many people got injured, I thought that many of those who might have genuinely, maybe they weren't grifting, maybe they genuinely believed 
that the Jews were an evil race of bastards who were controlling everything. I thought that the ones who genuinely believed it would recant because they would see the lockdowns, the vaccines, and it would dawn on them that the agenda for global governance or, you know, the, the Great Reset, whatever it is, whether you believe in that or not, well, it's not meant for any one specific group of people. It's meant for everybody. And Jews will suffer under it as much as anybody else. But many of them didn't see that. And that's a disappointment uh, for me, Andrew. I don't know if you want to comment on that before yeah. I read a few I, more I, comments. I, you see, if you look at the situation of Israel, where the Israeli population were the first to be yeah. experimented upon, it, that just doesn't make sense. Makes no sense. But that, I, I guess it's a problem that, I, God's sake, we try to avoid the use phrase conspiracy theory, but... People are very interested in looking at this whole idea of conspiracies and going down rabbit holes, and you keep on going down rabbit holes and opening doors to new rabbit holes. And when you get to the bottom and the final door, it's always marked World Jewish Conspiracy. At the end of it, yeah. 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 I, I don't know what you can do about that. Nothing. But you said earlier on very eloquently, I'm not kissing your backside, but it was eloquent. You said you, you really can't look into people's hearts. You can't. Yeah. So you don't know what's really in there. And that's the thing you don't. And I made this point to some of my critics over the years, Rachel Riley, David Bedeal. I said, come and have a conversation with me, you know, and, and, and I'll tell you what, what, what it is I think and what it is. And, that, and I like the term gaslighting. You know, I, this is a big yeah. problem in society where you say something and, and, you, and you mean it and others tell you this is not what you mean. That's a very dangerous and it's a very damaging thing that, you know, you don't mean that, you mean this. I mean, you can't win in, in that scenario. People can't win. Let me read a few comments before I ask you about the the IHRA um, definition of anti-Semitism yeah. and why you have a problem with it. Andrew Barr is our guest, the founder of Jews for Justice. And thanks for coming on, Andrew, because I'm sure, you know, one or two colleagues probably said, don't go on. But you came on, so I'm really glad you did <laughs> well, come yes. on. I'm glad I, you came. I will be described as a self-hating Jew for having come on your program. You might well be, yeah, yeah. But um, no, I know I appreciate it because it does, it does take, not courage, but it's a bit of a pain in the arse coming on a show like this because you will, you will get some stick for it. But anyway, um, those people are welcome to come on with me. I've invited them all on before. Gideon Falter, all these people, come and speak to me. Let's have a chat. And they don't. But anyway, some really lovely messages coming in. Kay says, my granddad was a prisoner of war for five years. He knew what was happening to Jews says K. Paula says the establishment didn't have any serious dirt on Corbyn and if he had got in they didn't have anything to control him with that's from Paula and one kind of kind of semi-theological question from Chris um, what would Andrew think of the Talmud uh, the idea of the Jews against the Goy and how Orthodox Jews have been speaking out a lot lately about the illegitimate state of Israel yes Orthodox Jews don't believe that Israel should well, exist. Some, until, go some ahead. Orthodox Jews some don't do. believe yeah. in it. Some. And the Talmud, the Jews versus the guys, we leave that there. Or do you want to say something on that? I'm not a Talmud scholar. Uh, it's a bit like, I think, if you look in the Christian version of the Bible, you look in the Quran, you can find things that are quite distasteful. Repugnant, yeah. In the, right, so let's talk about the, look at it, how quick, it's uh, 20 minutes to the top of the year. So the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, yeah. which has been adopted, I think pretty much universally, certainly in Ireland, certainly in Europe, certainly in uh, the UK, it defines what um, anti-Semitism is. Why do you not like it? What, what, how, why is it problematic? Well, a lot of people, particularly people on the left and people who are concerned about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, a lot of them Jews, 
don't like it because I think it has 11 categories and seven of them mention Israel. So Israel is that is very fundamental to this definition of anti-Semitism. And there's another definition called the Jerusalem Declaration, which took 150 academics four years to come up to a response to the IA definition and come up with something that was more nuanced about what you can and can't say about Israel from their perspective. The problem is that all these definitions are getting lost in the issue of Israel. And I thought, well, that's really unhelpful because it, it, it's very confusing and a lot of people strongly believe that they should be allowed, well, you're, I think, of this persuasion, they should be allowed to criticize Israel. And there's all kinds of nuances in the official definition as to what you are and aren't allowed, supposedly, to say. So, I mean, that's why we came up with our own definition, where we don't mention Israel at all, because we thought, well, it's important to have a definition of anti-Semitism, because everyone's arguing about it at the moment. Everyone's arguing about the thing of the weaponization of anti-Semitism. The concept of what is anti-Semitism is being stretched to include all these anti, so-called anti-Semitic tropes. And if you're going to have a bit of clarity, then maybe you could do it without mentioning Israel. So if you'd like to put it up on your website or something and get people to comment on it, that would actually be very helpful because all we've done so far with our definition is we've put it out on our, our Twitter and our group. And it's, yeah. a, it's a working definition like all the other definitions. And essentially, what, uh, going back to the point we were discussing earlier, one of the issues is this one of I mean, what I'd call the strict liability offence. In other words... If you say something and it is, is it motivated by hatred towards Jews or not? And I think why a lot of people like, say, Jeremy Corbyn or Roger Waters get very upset when they're accused of anti-Semitism is that they personally are not motivated in any way by hostility or hatred towards Jews. And... And they're being accused of anti-Semitism as a strict liability offence. In other words, whatever their motivation is, because they single out Israel for criticism, and I, I could discuss this with you at, at length as to whether or not it is wrong to single out Israel for criticism, they, these people get very upset that they're accused of being anti-Semitic because they say, well, I, I, have, I, I do not dislike Jews. That's just unfair. Yeah. So I can see that as a problem. So that's why we tried to take the Israel thing out of it. I don't know if it's worked, but I think it needs to be done. Well, I, I'll, by, by all means, I will make it my business tomorrow to, um, to, to, to copy and paste that and put it on uh, the website and, and see what people think about it. You made a great distinction there between people like, you know, Roger Waters and Jeremy Corbyn, who are, you know, diametrically opposed to the policies of the State of Israel when it comes to the treatment of the Palestinians, but who um, demonstrably do not hate Jews or do not dislike Jews, it's, it's obvious. And, um, and, and I like that idea that you take Israel out of it. I don't have any problem, I, I, I don't particularly like Israel either. Now, I don't know how much of this show you've heard over the years, but I've made the point to a couple of American academics who have been accused of anti-Semitism, but I don't believe they are anti-Semitic. 
I've made the point that, because I'm interested in what you said there about singling Israel out. Because I've had an academic on this program many times called Kevin Barrett. Very good guy, Kevin. He's currently living in Morocco with his wife. Uh, he converted to Islam. He's no time for Israel, and he's been very strong in his condemnation of Israel over the years, right? And he has opinions about Israel's involvement in certain terrorist attacks and stuff like that. But these are things he believes. I don't agree with him, but these are things he believes he's very eloquent. And I've said it to him over the years, and I, and I mean it. Um, why do they single, why single Israel out for what Israel does? Why not reserve at least some criticism? If, if let's just say that you're right, that Israel is a big demon, why not hold some criticism for the massive economies like France and Britain and the United States, which enables Israel? Because that's what I do, funnily enough, um, Andrew. Yeah. I don't like Israel. I can't stand it. I, I would be very pro... I, how, how can I say that? I have nothing against Israelis. I, success of Israeli governments, the incursions into the operations in Gaza, I can't stand any of that. I'm totally opposed to it. But I have nothing against Israelis, and many Israelis disagree with it, of course. But I don't single out Israel. I ask the, the question to these people, why no antipathy towards the monstrous economies who enable Israel to do what it does? Well, exactly. I mean, one the, it's a big question, unresolved question. Why so many people on the British left are so taken up with the Israeli-Palestinian question? Why don't they campaign on the, all the other areas they could campaign on with the same degree of passion and enthusiasm? And I think it's partly a matter of fashion. It's partly because, yes, if you'll say Jewish, you do feel you have a particular interest in what's happening in the Middle East. But I think it's also, it's a way of getting at two big bogeymen, which are the British Empire, which essentially created the State of Israel, and the United States, which uses Israel to promote its own interests in the Middle East. And that may be, as you, exactly as you say, it's a major reason for people's hostility towards Israel. It's directed at the wrong target. And there's been a very interesting discussion. I put it up on my Twitter recently in Tablet Magazine, which is a Jewish magazine I recommend to anyone because they actually have seen through the COVID nonsense. They've written some, uh, they had a whole discussion recently on how American support for Israel is actually harmful for Israel and Israel would be much better off if it had a more conventional transactional relationship with the U.S. because Israel ends up having to do what the United States tells it to do. And though Tablet didn't say that, one good example is, as I mentioned earlier, the whole vaccine program, yes. where I'm completely convinced it was under orders from the military industrial pharmaceutical complex from the U.S. that it had to be the guinea pig. That Israel had to be the guinea pig? Wow. Yeah. Can I just jump in for the lefties that seem to be obsessing with Palestine? And can I just um, make an argument on their behalf? Sure. They might say, Andrew, look, you're, you're, you're being unfair. Yes, we do spend a lot of time on Palestine, but we were part of the million that marched against the war in Iraq in London in 2002. We've spent yeah, years, you know, they'll say we spent years campaigning against wars in Libya, you know, the no-fly zone and what that led to, the, the carnage in Libya, Afghanistan, the mess there. So they might say, you're being a bit unfair now. You know, we're, gen we're, we're genuinely anti-aggression, they might say. Uh, that, yes, I'm not saying I 
I was generalizing. There are obviously plenty of people on the left who are anti any kind of aggression and oppression, but there are also lots of people on the left, I would, because I look at what they say and the protests they go on, who are obsessed with the Israeli Palestinian issue to the exclusion of everything of else. Many yeah. of these other yeah. issues. And I remind and, them. And I'd be keen to understand that. And I can understand, certainly, if they're Jews, indeed, if they're Muslims, if they're Arabs. But then you'd say, well, aren't they equally exercised with the Uyghur issue or the Rohingya issue? I think one another reason is that Israel is perceived as being a modern westernized nation that should be held to higher standards. Then that's then a moot point as to whether it should be or shouldn't. But I think that's part of it. It's also a place you can go and visit. You can go and see what's going on. And I would argue from a religious stroke theological position that if Israel is supposed to be a Jewish state, then it should hold itself to a higher standard. But that's another argument altogether. Do you sometimes sigh with regret, as I do? I mentioned this to Stuart Waite and another uh, terrific academic on on Monday's programme, that we cannot have these... um, you know, almost. I don't. I don't want to say intellectual because I don't consider myself to be an intellectual. But we can't have these grown-up, you know, hostility-free conversations on TV like Dick Cavett used to do years ago in America, like Parkey yeah. used to do, because plurality has basically been destroyed in the media. We don't have it. I mean, isn't it a terrible thing? Wouldn't it be so interesting, informative and entertaining if we could get people who might be revisionists, who don't hate Jewish people at all, or people who maybe do single Israel out for a bit of criticism more than they should do, but they don't hate Jews, and even people who hate Jews, and get people talking openly about what's going on and why they think as they do. Um, We miss that so much, Andrew, don't we, today? Yeah, and that's what, I mean, I, like you, have been crying out for. The mainstream jury won't talk to us, let alone you. You know, we're beyond the pale as well. You're the wrong Jews, basically. Exactly. Let's finish with the vaccines. Um, yeah. Your, your, your research is your gift as, as a historian. Obviously, you're not a doctor or a medical scientist, but you're a researcher. And, and that's my gift, too. I'm a good researcher. It's obvious that these jabs are harming people, not everybody. It's obvious. Um, And that previously, in years gone by, pandemics comes to mind uh, 10 or so years ago. And famously in the 1970s, when a swine flu jab was hauled off the market almost immediately when there were some fatalities in um, America. Uh, This is a horrible question to ask you at about four minutes to go. What's going on, Andrew? Why has the rollout not been suspended? pending an investigation, in your, let's be honest, learned opinion. What do you think? Well, I I think I'd sidestep that question by saying you've had a member of my group, Dr. Jane Donegan, on your programme more than once, and she would probably be a better person to answer that question than I, because I don't think I know the answer. I don't know if she knows the answer, but she would have a more professional opinion on it. Yeah, I mean, Jane will be back on the show in the in the near future. Um, great to have you on, Andrew. Thanks for, for coming on, for, for giving us so much of your time uh, this evening. And uh, 
uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. It'd be nice to have... I, I try to set these up. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. Uh, you know, a kind of a round table where we could talk about Israel-Palestine. We could talk about... That, that, would, you know, be, that would be great. Wouldn't um, it? And also, if we could, you know, if it were possible to get some feedback about our attempt to produce a working definition of anti-Semitism through your website, that would also, I think, be very productive in terms of a discussion along those lines. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%, yeah. Um, I, I will do that. Hayden uh, Hewitt, who looks after our website, I, I will get him on it. Um, in the meantime, Choose for Justice is on Telegram. You, I've already tweeted, and on the podcast notes, I will put the Twitter links to to Andrew's own personal Twitter and also to the Jews for Justice Twitter. So do give yeah. them a follow there and uh, keep in touch with what they're doing. So uh, genuinely... Pleasure to meet you, Andrew. Love the conversation and uh, I look forward to next time. Thank you and have a great weekend. No, thank you so much, Richie, and congratulations on, on your ninth birthday. Thank you very much. We survived another year, Andrew. Thank you. Here's to, here's to the next year. Uh, have a fantastic evening and speak again. Bye for now. Wonderful stuff. Andrew Barr, uh, Jews for Justice. He founded the group. Um, disturbed Boy. Uh, I'm not going to paraphrase what he said. I'm not going to put words in his mouth. Maybe disgusted by how anti-Semitism was weaponized and used against people like Andrew Bridgen and Neil Oliver and others. Um, great to have him on. We're nearly there. All that's left for me to say uh, is that once again, thanks for being with the show this year again. Uh, we've come to the end of our ninth year. Uh, tomorrow's the ninth anniversary. A number of you have sent me some very nice messages already. I really appreciate them. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing, really. And um, I'll have a, I'll raise a glass tomorrow to you and to the show. Like I said, I won't go mentioning people individually. You know, Mark and Gina and Patricia and Ruth and Andrew and Sophie and Andrew Hunter, of course, my great friend Andy. Yeah, see, and if I stop now, I'm, 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 I'm omitting Hayden, Paul, of course. I could be here all day long, the missus. But uh, so I won't do that, right? So if I didn't mention you just there, I'm just going to stop. But uh, yeah, here's to the next twelve months. Who knows what it's going to bring? Um, is 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 fair enough? Who who knows what it's going to bring? I don't know what it's going to bring. What I can tell you is that um, we'll be here, you and me, talking about it and trying to figure it out uh, ourselves um, as we go along. Closing out with a little bit of bad English. Why not? Uh, today, this is a track called When I See You Smile. Have a fantastic weekend. We're back. Uh, well, th this, this show returns on Monday at 5 o'clock, and I've got some amazing guests coming on next week. Monday at 5. But the Melodies programme is on air this coming Sunday at 10 o'clock UK time, 10 o'clock uh, UK time. If you don't know what that is, it's a music programme. Easy listening with a nice bit of relaxing chat. That's all it is. 10 o'clock Sunday. Listen, have a great weekend. Thanks to my guests and thanks to Heather uh, from Inverness in Air One. She was absolutely brilliant too. Speak soon. Sometimes I wonder how I'd ever make it through.